Okay. Let's um, let's open in a word of prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful word of God. We thank you for its simple truth. We thank you for its guidance, its warnings, its blessings, the things it teaches us, dear Lord, about you and about the truth of who you are. And I pray, dear Lord, that each one of us would grow in the knowledge and the hope of our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. I pray, dear Lord, that you'll be with me as I bring the word of God to my brothers and sisters here, to friends, dear Father, and those that are even yet to know you. I pray, dear Father, you would impact their lives and their hearts and that they would come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and give us a deeper knowledge and trust in your word. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Amen. Amen. Pastor Frank has been um, going through the um, Gospel of Matthew, uh, the, the, the um, Olivet Discourse. That's what you've been doing? Yeah? Correct. Chapter 24 and 25. I've been listening. I've been listening. He's been going through that, and it's a wonderful blessing because it tells a lot about what's coming to pass. So it's uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25. I'm actually going to be preaching on one verse. It's actually Matthew chapter 24, verse 25. It's really weird. I only noticed that this morning as I was getting ready. I was thinking about the introduction and, and realised that, that the, the verse is the same as the chapters. But we are going to be reading um, just the first portion of Matthew chapter 24 so we can get it into some context. It's been a blessing for us as we went through. We're going to read just from verse 3 to 25. Read, uh, read along with me. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you. And ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. When ye therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let him which be in Judea flee unto the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then, if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs, and false prophets shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that... If it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, 
I have told you before. Behold, I have told you before. I um, work in the construction industry and I've got a number of, uh, number of employees that work for me. They work on, work on a range of different building sites around Melbourne. Um, and we'll often get, you know, instructions that will come through to change something. You know, to change this or to change that. Uh, to, to do something a little bit different or to add to our scope of work that we do. The first question that always comes to our mind is, who told you? Who told you that? That's one of the first points that we've got here. Who has told? Sorry, what I've done is... You know, when, when we study and we bring together the Word of God and we, and we, um, and we want, to, want to gather a message together, we always run through those questions. Alan's mentioned it to, to us once before. We go, who, what, where, how, and all those questions. You're not supposed to use those as sermon points. I couldn't help it with this one. I couldn't help it with this one. So the first point is, who has told? The second point is, who has he told? The third point is, what has he told? And the fourth was, when did he tell? So... That question always comes up in our minds. We ask, you know, who told you that? Who told you that? In our mind, we understand that the authority for what has been told is only valid by who has told it. Does it make sense? We know that. We see that all the time. You know, who told you that? I mean, if it was just a labourer that was working on the building site that told us we need to vary our contract, I'm not going to be taking it with too much credibility. It's not what he's told that was important. It was the very fact that he wasn't the one with the authority to tell. Make sense? Okay, and we see that all the time. Matter of fact, all our laws work in exactly the same way. Um, in, 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 in universities, whether they're secular universities, whether they're theological institutions, it's the same. We tend to hold people with a certain degree of authority and what they say on a higher plane, on a higher, we, we esteem them higher. Than, uh, than what we would normally do for if it was anybody else. Okay, So you're listening to a person that's completely unqualified. I have no qualifications whatsoever and I'm bringing you the word of God and preaching the truth. But it's not me who's telling you. Behold, I have told you before. And this is the Lord that's speaking. So as he gives the word of God, you know, how, who has told is really, really important. You know, our... our um, how we bring up our children today, according to the laws of the land, has been largely influenced from many years ago by a man called Dr. Benjamin Spock. Yes, Dr. Spock. Dr. Spock wrote a book. He was a, um, he was a paediatrician. He wrote a book in 1946 called Baby and Child Care. Um, and on his website, it stated that his book has sold more well, it was second to the Bible in the amount of copies it sold within the first number of years. Up until 1998, it had sold 50 million copies. It's in 49 languages, and in 2012 was up to its ninth edition. Why is that important? Dr. Spock is also listed among 100 of the most important people of the 20th century, according to Life magazine. It's through his influential book that we get the idea that corporal punishment of children is wrong. Okay, it's through his book that we need to learn to placate our children's wants and our children's needs. It's through what he teaches that rather than um, teach our children self-control and discipline, we need to indulge them. Okay, and 
almost immediately as people started to embrace this book by the authority that he had as a doctor, as a paediatrician, and the popularity of that book, immediately the rise of delinquency in teenagers started going through the roof during the 60s and the 70s. As I, as I say those things, a few of you are nodding your head, you'd understand what occurred during those times. And what they discovered was that um, it had an incredible rise of narcissism in the hearts of teenagers. Narcissism, narcissism is a big word. Basically means self-love, self-adoration. Uh, their focus is here. They adore themselves. Um, nothing's more, a better picture of narcissism than the, what's, what's today? What's a great picture of narcissism today? The selfie, yeah, all the, 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 the wonderful selfie. That's a picture of narcissism today. That's one, that's one picture of it, okay? And we see that today, because that's... Did you hear about that lady that actually took... She died taking a selfie. She fell off a bridge. It was, in, uh, it was tragic. It is really tragic, but you can't help but... It was tragic. His, his book was influential. It was incredibly influential, and it changed the course of how we bring up our children in the Western world. In 1968, he recognised, too, that he had to make some changes. He was in an interview with the New York Times. Spock admitted of the first edition of his book that, quote, parents began to be afraid to impose on the child in any way. He tried to address it by emphasising the need to set standards, um, but the influence of narcissism was increasing under his influential work. Okay, so... Again, the point that I'm trying to make is who has said is just as important as what is said. In fact, it gives what is said its value. Does that make sense? Okay, so the authority of the words are determined by the or, their origin of issue. Okay, the authority of the words are determined by their origin of issue. Okay, it's... it's and, you know, we judge what is said by what we think of who it is that said it. All right? Okay, so we judge what is said by what we think of who it is that said it. And that's vitally important. Because what you think of the one who has spoken matters, clearly, doesn't it? And what you think of the one who has spoken, his words, what he says, will either impact your life or they won't impact your life. They'll either make a difference to you or they won't make a difference to you. And your life will bear that out. Our Lord asked the question in Matthew 22, verse 42. Our Lord asks his disciples a question and he asks this question of you now because this is really important. And it's simply this. What think ye of Christ? What think ye of Christ? Your, your answer to that question will determine exactly what you think of his words. Behold, I have told you before. So what? Who are you? If it doesn't make any difference to your life, if the individual doesn't make any difference to your life, what he says will not make any difference to your life. And believe it or not, your life will be a walking, living, breathing testimony of what you think he has said. Okay? That's what that refers to. So what do you think of Christ? Is he, is, he, is he the lesser prophet of Islam? Is that what he is? 
who used to many, many, many millions and millions of people around the world, is that who he is? Is he the ever-to-be placated and ingested son of Roman Catholicism? Is that what he is? Another hundreds of millions of people around the world influenced by Christ in that way. But is that who he is? Or is he the once-a-week alarm clock of Baptists? I thought that was funny when I wrote it. We get a bit of an alarm clock once a week. You know, oh, time to wake up. Monday comes back to sleep. Is he that? What you think about him, understand that knowing and believing rightly about who has told us before will alter what we think about his words. A statement in Matthew 24, 25 is all about his words. What he said, who it is that said it, who he has told and when he has told it. One thing is sure, if you think that Jesus Christ is like the New Age boyfriend Jesus of the 10-decade-old best-selling book by Sarah Young, Jesus Calling, and that's a massive, massive book. If you've ever seen it around charismatic or Pentecostal circles, it is a huge book. Um, or if you think that he's the placeful subject of another best-selling book, Your Best Life Now by megachurch pastor Joel Osteen, or the useful incantation of Word of Faith proponent Joyce Meyer, or is he the non-judgmental wish-granter of Pentecostals? Now, what he said before will take, you'll take a little notice of. But if you truly believe that he is God manifest in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16, or, if, or, if, or that all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made in John 1.3, and that he came to judge the quick and the dead in 1 Peter 4.5, and that through him we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly in John 10.10. 10. And remember that he is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble in Psalm 46.1. Then what he said before becomes infinitely, infinitely significant. Infinitely significant. Think about this. As, as you bring the word of God to you, think about this. String together the word of God and put it together as a logical conclusion about how we are to now live our lives. What's the most important aspect about how we live our lives? What's vital that we can do that makes a difference? And the difference that we can make, you know, we can make is eternal. Behold, I have told you before. That's the second point. Who has he told? That should be the shortest point, really. And, you know, who told us? Jesus. Who has he told? Well, the disciples. And maybe there's more to it than this. Matthew, the text of Matthew 24. So we're in 24. Remember, he's, he's addressing his disciples. Okay, we see this from verse 3. Right, it says, in verse 3 it says, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And our Lord graciously details an answer that runs for 94 verses about what is to come in the future. Details that include warnings beginning with not being deceived, in verse 4, 
And ending with a description of the natural works of those who shall enter into eternal life in the following chapter, chapter 25, verse 46. Yet through the discourse is a detailed description respecting the last days. Therefore, in context, we know that though he's speaking to his present disciples, he's not limiting his discourse to the present disciples only, but to also the disciples to come. He's also speaking about the nation of Israel. Okay, that's going to be around in those days. That's why it tells us in Luke 12:40, he says, Be ye therefore ready, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. That's why we are encouraged to watch in, in these two chapters. What has thrown a lot of people is the statement that Jesus makes in verse 34. Have a look at the statement in verse 34. He says... And it's important because you're going to, as you read through the scriptures, you're going to actually see this. You're going to think, oh, well, what's that talking about? Is that talk- must be talking about them there. Verse 34, he says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Preterists cite that text as a confirmation, one of the confirmations, that everything that has come to pass was in that generation. Okay, But we sort of know that that can't be the case. Have a look at verse 35, the following verse. The text says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Then verse 36 says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Does that exclude the Son from knowing? Does that exclude Jesus from knowing? You can't really tell in that text, can you? So what you need to do is you need to go to a parallel text in Mark chapter 13. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Now this whole, the whole context here, Mark is speaking of the same event. It's still speaking about the Olivet Discourse. Okay? It's still speaking on the Olivet Discourse. Mark chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. I love how the Lord frames it. He always frames it in a way that we can't be making a mistake here. It's talking about the same thing. Verse 31 says... Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. That was exactly what was in Matthew. But, verse 32, Of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Neither the Son. The point is that if our Lord at that time had no knowledge of when that day will come, then he could not be limiting what he is saying to the current disciples. Make sense? If he had no knowledge of when that day would come, it's not possible for him to be limiting the future knowledge to those disciples only. But again, for our sakes, the Lord makes it clear. Stay there in Mark. Stay there in Mark. Again, the Lord makes it very, very clear in Mark exactly whether or not he's actually speaking to those disciples or not. Have a look at the next verse. Verse 33 to verse 37. Take heed, watch and pray. For you know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore. For ye know not when the master of the house cometh at even or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all. Watch. The Lord is speaking about all. All of us. All the disciples that would come after. 
I'll go on a side note for a second, just a real sidetrack. I just park that and I just got to go to the side because then this also brings up problems, theological problems for people in their own minds. So if you're a really clever person, you would have already thought about this theological problem. If you didn't think of it, it doesn't mean you're not clever, okay? I wasn't trying to say that. But the problem that arises for most people in their minds is that, hang on, wasn't Jesus God? Isn't Jesus God? Or while he's here on the earth, how can he not know everything that's going on? There's a passage in, in Philippians in 2.7. We understand that when the Lord came, he set aside certain attributes of God or something that he did willingly, willingly, because he needed to relate to us as our high priest. Remember, he came to die on a cross representing man, fallen man. He was sin crucified on the cross, remember? Okay. In, in Philippians 2.7, he says, But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. The, the, the word of no reputation is that word that we understand in, in, in theology as Christ setting aside some of his attributes it's it's a it's a theological term known as kenosis that's the that's the word that represents those three okay so that one word is a representation of those those three words kenosis it's where jesus christ actually physically set aside certain attributes but it does not take away the fact that while he was on the earth he was god manifest in the flesh okay now back on track back on track we know this because even nathaniel recognized this about the lord jesus remember when the lord saw him under the fig tree Nathaniel just said to him, Thou art the Son of God. So we understood that the disciples knew who he was. They recognised it. Okay, so our Lord was addressing both future disciples and Israel for an understanding of that which will occur when God resumes his particular dealings with Israel as a nation. Okay, so though, though the church is a parenthesis in history, uh, a mystery that the Bible says has been revealed after Christ rose from the dead, and that the catching up of the church to meet the Lord in the air before the tribulation of those days, which effectively closes that parenthesis, so we're sort of like in a, in a, in a bracket of history, okay? it does not then necessarily follow that biblical Christians will not suffer increasing persecutions and trials as we lead up to those days. There's a lot of people that... There's a lot of people that believe that because the church, according to scripture, will be caught up, will be taken out before the tribulation of those days, before the great tribulation, the seven year period, and then, then the three and a half year period of the great tribulation, they believe we're not going to struggle with persecution. We're not going to suffer. I mean, and, and it's hard to get your head around because why should today's church suffer any, any less than the churches of days gone by? We're in a we're in a time in history that's a... Mate, we're in a comfort bubble. We're in a total comfort bubble, you know? There's no time like this in history gone by. In history gone by, biblical Christians were persecuted to death. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church killed more biblical Christians than all the Roman emperors put together. We know that, okay? It's a historical fact. So we live in this, in this, in this little comfort bubble, an opportunity where we could share the gospel freely. How are we going with that? No, we're, we're too comfortable. We're too comfortable. So, but it doesn't mean that. Remember that all these things that are going to be happening in history during the Great Tribulation has to have a build-up. Many of the trials spoken of in this passage will be built upon the trials 
the future holds for the church today. And tribulations will not appear out of a vacuum. Okay? But even now, much is occurring to pave the way, and many Christians are being persecuted both in the West and in the East in a variety of different ways. As man gives up the knowledge of God, he will replace it with the acts of the devil, which is precisely what we see, we're seeing today, and we're seeing that all over the place today. William Penn said this, he said, Those who will not be governed by God will be ruled by tyrants. Those who will not be governed by God will be ruled by tyrants. As we Christians neglect to share the gospel, our misery will be aggravated by those we've neglected. Daniel Webster, an American senator in the 1800s, said this. He said, If the power of the gospel is not felt throughout the length and breadth of the land, anarchy and misrule, degradation and misery, corruption and darkness will reign without mitigation or end. That's 200 years ago. And we're seeing a lot of that coming to pass now because... Of a whole, Christians are very comfortable and the gospel is not being shared. Today's modern church of Laodicea may very well experience much of what Christ has told us before. Third point, what has he told? Oh, this is probably going to take a while. What has he told? Okay, I need to limit the context, obviously. We need to limit the context to where we are here. Um, you know, the full, a full third of the Bible is prophecy. It speaks about that which is yet to come. It speaks about events that are yet to come in the future. Okay? Um, when Jesus said, Behold, I have told you before, two things can be understood. One, that which he speaks now, he stated earlier. Simple. Right? Two, that which he speaks now is referring to that which will come later. Okay? Also relatively simple. No other book in history confirms itself this way. There's not a book in history that confirms itself like the Bible. There's not a book in history that speaks about things that are going to be happening in the future that was written in the past that have been so perfectly fulfilled as the Bible. The Quran is nothing like that. The Quran is a, a, a string of incredible sayings and they're actually listed in order from the largest chapter to the smallest chapter, not in a historical context as we have. Okay? The, the, the Hindu Vedas is exactly the same. They've got a whole bunch of pithy sayings and incantations okay, right throughout it. And that is, that's a book that's much bigger than this, by the way. Okay? But it doesn't frame itself in a historical context. The Bible does everything it can so you can prove it true. It's incredible how God puts himself on the line. He says, prove me now herewith, he says. He makes it clear. If what I'm saying doesn't come to pass and you're listening to a false prophet, and yet we can look at every time from, from the very garden with, with, with Adam in the garden right through to the captivity or to the exodus of, it, of, uh, of Israel, God had already told them that they're going to be going into a land, that they're going to be strangers in the land that they're going to be taken captive and they're going to be serving a, a man for 400 years and then they're going to be coming out. Then he prophesied and said so clearly that a nation is going to come and take them and take them into captivity because they have not obeyed to the point that he names the individual that's going to take them. He speaks about Nebuchadnezzar as his servant. 
And that's exactly what occurs a number of years later. And then during the captivity, 70 years, Daniel understood by books. He understood by reading Jeremiah. 70 years were ordained for the people to be in, to be in captivity during that time. And a large chunk, believe it or not, as you read the Bible, you find that a massive chunk of the Bible is dedicated just before, just after, and during that pivotal point in history. Just in case, if you think that the Exodus was the main captivity issue for Israel, it wasn't. It wasn't. According to the Bible, the Bible leads a whole lot of pages and chapters and books dedicated around that captivity. And what did he understand? He understood by books. The Bible prophesied in Isaiah... 150 years before Cyrus, he says, I name you and I name you by name, Cyrus. I have forenamed you, though you have not known me, he says. Could you imagine Daniel coming to Cyrus? And he says, uh, you want to have a look at this? You know, Cyrus has a look and he finds out that the Bible says that he was to lay waste kingdoms and nations, that he was to open up the two-levered gates. Do you know Cyrus actually entered into Babylon without a battle? No battle. He drained the water in the river. The river sank down and God had effectively opened up the two-levered gates, went straight under the gates, walked under and took over the entire nation. Babylon, this, this incredible city that has laid waste nations. And God prophesied that he will open those doors for him. You know, And we see that exactly come to pass, exactly as the Bible told it. Matter of fact, it's gotten to the point where it was so clear in history and what Daniel was writing about the Greek Empire, the Persian Empire first, then the Greek Empire after, and then the Roman Empire. But so clear about those empires that all, a lot of the liberal scholars want to late date Daniel. They believe it's so clear, speaking about Alexander the Great, that he was, that he was going to come as a, as, a, as a leopard and he was going to be able to take over these nations. That he was going to come and he was going to die early. He was going to be cut off at an early age. Have no posterity. Leave the kingdom to nobody. And give it to the four winds. And he gave it to the four generals. His four generals. The, 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 uh, the legend goes, who shall inherit the kingdom? And he said, give it to the strong. Give it to the strong. So the four generals had taken those, uh, the, the different parts of the kingdom. And that was prophesied in the book of Daniel hundreds of years before Alexander the Great was even born. How do you get it that precise? Well, you have to know the end from the beginning. That's all. Not hard, is it? You just need to know the end from the beginning. Behold, I have told you before. What do you think of Christ? Who is he? Does he speak with authority? Can he know the end from the beginning? Let's get a whole bunch of my notes. Matthew 24:21 says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever, no, nor ever shall be. The Lord is referring to the, to the latter half of the seven-year tribulation period known as the great tribulation, after which he will return. The period's going to last for three and a half years. I want to touch on that three and a half year period. You'll need to turn to Revelation chapter 13. Because this is pivotal and I want you to be able to see what's actually happening today and how that relates to what the Bible actually says was going to happen. So you can understand that the Lord knows the end from the beginning. Revelation chapter 13. This is obviously the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
the appearing, or known as the apocalypse, the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 13, John begins to describe his vision in the first few verses and makes mention of a beast that will arise and that, will, and that which the entire world will worship. And he says from verse 3, he says, And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his death... Oh, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. All the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Are you guys getting hot? Is it just me? Alright. Okay. Jonathan Edwards was the one that preached fire. I don't quite do that. Well, I'm, I'm hot. Okay. How long is 42 months? Anybody? 42 months? Three and a half years. Okay. Well, that seems to link in really well. Three and a half years, 42 months. It's amazing how God says it so many different ways. It'll be three and a half years, it'll be 42 months, it even goes down to weeks. And yet people still think that it's allegorical. You know? But it happens. Who is the they referred to in verse 4? Have a look at verse 4. Who is the they referred to? And they worship the dragon. Who's they? Who? Verse 3, yeah? And all the world that wandered after the beast. Okay, so that they refers to all the world. So what sort of a system are we going to be having in the world during that time? They, the world, worshipped. It's going to be all the world worshipping. Could you, can you see a global religious system there? I can see a global religious system. I can see all the world united in voice under a global religious system, whether it's forced, whether it's voluntary. Here, that, it seems to be voluntary for a lot of these people. Okay, so number one, I see a global religious system. Go down to verse 16. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, bond free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, threescore and six. I, I, I watched a, a show many, many years ago. Uh, it was on the... the it was a... Oh, they had this Christian television channel that got promoted through our church back then. And, mate, it's... Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it, OK? But anyway, there was a particular channel There's the 700 Club. And they were interviewing a man who was from Verichip. Verichip was the company linked with MasterCard who designed a chip that goes under the skin, and they were promoting the RFID chip, which we've got in all our, all our key cards, yeah? Um, and the PayWave. You see that? Oh, oh. And what he was saying was, are we going to be able to buy and sell and all that sort of stuff using that particular chip? But he went onto the Christian television network because he wanted, them, he wanted to assure them that this isn't the mark of the beast. Now, I don't believe that it's the mark of the beast. Don't get me wrong. I believe that the mark of the beast is going to contain a chip that will go under it because otherwise we won't be able to buy or sell without it. I do believe that. But the mark of the beast is a 666. It could very well be the triketa of ancient times. I don't, I don't know exactly. I'm not 
that's beside the point. The point that he was trying to make is, this isn't the mark. This isn't the mark. Because the Bible says that they will receive a mark on their hand and on their forehead. But you see, this, this goes in. This goes in. He made the point. This goes in. I'm like, I went to my Bible and I had a look. And it says, here is wisdom. No, it says, no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Oh no, verse 16. He was most small and great, rich and poor to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. What's going on? My Bible says in. Where does he get on? So because I've got such a range of Bibles, especially all the modern ones, I had a look. Every, and I'm telling you, every modern version since the KJV, every modern version says on. Every ancient version from the KJV back, and I checked it, did it yesterday, says in. What's changed? Can on be in and in be on? Oh. Well, see, that the same word in the Greek can be translated in or on. How did they know it was going to be in? I mean, what, did, what did the translators of the KJV, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, the Coverdale Bible, Tyndale's Bible and Wycliffe, what on earth did they know about Verichip? <laughs> they didn't know anything about Verichip. They're translating it according to the text, faithfully translating it. The very fact that this individual was making a point that it's not the mark of the beast, and we see that the faithful translations of the Bible indicate that it goes in, gives you an indication that the mark of the beast may indeed contain. It was a side issue, sorry, I'll just do that for your play. But he causeth all, getting back to the point. Sorry, I promised myself I'm not going to go on rabbit trials. <sighs> sorry, sorry, Pastor Frank. Uh, and he causeth all, 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 and he causeth all. He causeth all. Causes all. Got it? What sort of government needs to be in place for one man to cause all? It's, the context is still the same, okay? The all refers to the whole world, right? The, the context hasn't changed. It's still carried all the way through. What sort of government needs to be in place? Sorry? Dictatorship. And it has to be how big in scope? It has to be global in scope, yeah? So now, so now we've got... Now, what we're bringing out of the text, this is exegesis, guys. This is exegesis. So what we're bringing out of the text now is we're bringing out a global religious system and we're bringing out a global government. Let's go for one more. Let's go for one more. Both small and great, rich and poor, bond and free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead that no man might buy or sell save he that may have the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. What type of currency needs to be in place? That all men might buy or sell. What sort? Worldwide currency? Uh, a single currency or multiple currencies? So what are we looking at? So we've got a global religious system, one. We've got a global government, two. And we've got a global currency. Yes? How are we going with all that? Can you see any evidence of that in the world at the moment? Hmm. There's a lot of things that we're not told in the news today, is there? Global currency. Religion. Let's start with the first point. The World Council of Churches was established in 1948 
to join both Protestant and Eastern Orthodox churches and their respective denominations through ecumenical dialogue. You'll hear that word dialogue come up. And unity. It describes itself as a worldwide fellowship of 430, sorry, 349 global, regional and sub-regional, national and local churches seeking unity. That's their quote. That's, this is part of their, that was on their website. Uh, a common witness and Christian service. It claims to represent 590 million people in 150 countries, including two, 520,000 local congregations served by 493,000 pastors. The, the Parliament of World Religions held its first World Parliament of Religions in 1893 to create a global dialogue of faiths. The event was celebrated on its centenary in 1993, then seven years later in 1999, then five years later in 2004, then three years later in 2007, two years later in Melbourne in 2009. Now it seems to be held annually. This year it was in Brussels, next year it's in the US. It includes more religions than I can identify here. And we're talking, you're not just talking about Protestants. We're talking Protestants. We're talking, we're talking Baha'i, snake charmers, earth worshippers, Wiccans. Where any belief system that you can think of is gathered here. The Pope was pictured with a number of these individuals and, and all these people were giving, um, there's video footage of snake charmers actually giving a prayer. And, and, and all these other different people giving prayer during the 1990s. That's an incredible thing. The global interfaith movement is another event. We've seen parts of that for the last two years over at the Faulkner Festival. So they don't realise that they're actually part of a global reach of religious unity. In September this year, September, we're in November, a couple of months ago, Simon Perez met with Pope Francis to agree to form an organisation of united religions. Simon Perez said that the world would be better if he had what he called an unquestionable moral authority. In September 4th meeting with the Pope, he nominated the Pope to lead that organisation. You hear about that in your news? You didn't hear about that in your news, do you? A big deal? Big deal. I reckon it's a big deal. The 34th World Religions Conference was held also in September 28th this year. Its theme was Pathway to Peace. It was held in Canada. Its objectives are the same as those that are above. Okay, and what, I, and what I'd written. Back in 1997, an interesting event occurred in the US. One news report described it this way. This is from the news report. Nearly 200 delegates wrapped up a week-long interfaith meeting at Stanford on Friday, predicting they had given birth to a movement as well as a spiritual institution, the United Religions, the Spiritual United Nations, as some have referred to it, would be a world assembly for humanity's myriad spiritual traditions, the International Summit Conference brought together delegates from every continent to inaugurate formal efforts to figure out the organisation's structure and mission. This is in 1997. And launch a charter writing process. After several years of talking, the initiative's planners had finally got down to business. This is a quote now from William, Reverend William E. Swing, Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of California. He said, you are deputised. Tell the world that there is a united religions and that somewhere in the world it is beginning to happen 
that the religions are going to have an oasis where they can talk about peace. It was in June 1997. You getting a bit of a hint? Uh, and I could go on and on and on. on. We're going to be here for ages if I could bring out all the quotations with regards to, and, and the evidences of what's happening with starting a world religious system. Global government. Global government. Next point. Did you hear anything about global government in the news? You don't hear it all the time. You don't hear a great deal about it. Can I give you a couple of quotes? I'll give you a couple of quotes. We shall have world government, whether we like it, whether, we, whether or not we like it. The only question is whether world government will be achieved by conquest or consent. There was a statement made before the United States Senate on February the 7th, 1950, by James Paul Warburg. Uh, there's another one. To achieve world government, it is necessary to remove from the minds of men their individualism, loyalty to family traditions, national patriotism and religious dogmas. Rock Adams, director of the United Nations Health Organisation. Next one. A world government can intervene militarily in the internal affairs of any nation when it disapproves of their activities. Kofi Annan, the United Nations General Secretary. Getting warmer yet? Today, this is another quote. Today, America would be outraged if United Nations troops entered Los Angeles to restore order, referring to the 1991 LA riot. Tomorrow, they'll be grateful. Listen to this. This is really, really interesting, how, they, how they're going to be doing this. This is especially true if they were told that there were an outside threat from beyond. In other words, ex inter extraterrestrial invasion or anything like that. Whether real, whether real or promulgated. That threatened our very existence. It is then that all peoples of the world will plead to deliver them from this evil. The one thing every man fears is, un is the unknown. When presented with this scenario, individual rights will be willingly relinquished for the guarantee of the well-being granted to them by the world government. Dr. Henry Kissinger. Dr. Henry Kissinger. Anyone that's my age and above will know that name very, very well. Bilderberger Conference in France, 1991. He is still advocating that. He actually just wrote a book. Uh, it's only been released this year, and he's still full-on advocating world government and the world process. He nominated Obama in 2009 as the one that was going to help instigate that, and Obama has indeed run so many things that is drawing everybody together to a world religious system. Um, can I give you... Uh, I don't want to do too much. All right, a couple of short ones. We are on the verge of a global transformation. All we need is the right major crisis, and the nations will accept the new world order. David Rockefeller. In the next century, nations as we know it will be obsolete. All states will recognise a single global authority. National sovereignty wasn't such a great idea after all. Strobe Talbot, President Clinton's Deputy, 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 Deputy Secretary uh, of the State, and that was written in the Time magazine 1992. You'll love this one. The Climate Bill will help bring about global governance. We always knew there was something sly about the climate but, in its, but it is the awareness itself that will drive the change and one of the ways it will drive the change is through global governance and global agreements. Al Gore, July 7th, 2009, at Oxford Smith School World Forum, an enterprise on the environment sponsored by the UK Times. We see evidence? And, mate, I've had seriously scratched the surface. There are 
quotations and dates and everything going back from the 1700s that we can actually draw on, on a constant, ongoing work to create a global religious and government system. Global currency. Global currency. Any evidence of that? Well, we've got the euro, didn't we? Uh, we don't realise. The euro's only 14 years old now. I think it started around about 2000. But do you know the euro actually come up, bang, out of nowhere, all of a sudden? And there was a particular method that was used. I won't go into it because it'll take more time than I've got. Have a look at this. A global economy requires a global currency. Paul Volcker, former chair of the US Federal Reserve. Another question, another, another statement. The great struggle of history has been for the control over money. It is almost tautological to affirm that to control the production and distribution of money is to control the wealth, resources and people of the world. Jack Weatherford, anthropologist and author. I'm just going to single this down to try and get to a couple of, of key ones. Oh, yeah, there's only a couple here. Now, 1998. The transition to a single currency for the entire world will come with a speed that might surprise many. The world might easily move from having almost 200 currencies today to having one within a decade. And 25 years from now, historians will wonder why it took so long to eliminate the babble of currencies which existed in the 20th century. Brian Taylor, Chief Economist at Global Financial Data. Have a look at this one. 2001. When Visa was founded 25 years ago, the founders saw the world as needing a single global currency. It's the founders of Visa for exchange. Everything we've done from a global perspective has been about trying to put one piece in place after another to fulfil that global vision. Sarah Perry, Director of Visa's Strategic Investment Program. I'm getting warm. Mayor Amschel Rothschild, way back then, said simply this, Permit me to issue and control the money of a nation, and I care not who writes its laws. What we see happening today is, is such an event that will turn your mind if you could really understand it. The constant ongoing printing of money, which is what is happening around the world today, is a result because we don't have a gold standard anymore. They got eliminated in, nine, in 1972 by Richard Nixon. Okay? Once you don't have a standard, the entire world all of a sudden jumped into what's called a fiat currency. A fiat currency is a currency that's based by fiat, by decree. Okay? So it's given, the government gives the value of that currency. Okay? So they are now print that money. So your dollars that you have in your pocket is literally not worth the paper that it's written on. It has no inherent value of itself. It did when it was under a gold standard, it doesn't anymore. Let me bring it all down really short. As they print money, they devalue their currency and inflation begins. Okay? So inflation isn't prices going up. Inflation is the value of our dollar going down. It's like adding water to cordial. You've seen cordial, it's nice, thick, rich, try drinking it, pretty strong. You add water to it, it becomes more palatable. You add more water to it, it dilutes its value. Okay, that's exactly what's happening with our dollar. The incredible thing is, through history, individual nations would devalue their currency, and you can, you can see it marked up against another currency. During the Weimar Republic in Germany, and I'm talking fast, there's just a bit that I want to get through. During the Weimar Republic in Germany, the mark, a mark, was worth, you had four marks equaled one dollar. Really easy to see the, the link, yeah? Four marks equals a dollar. Okay, to bring it right down to 1923, now it takes, ah, 
guess you'd probably remember too, but I think it was 80 trillion marks equals a dollar. A, a stamp cost 20 milliard marks. A milliard is a billion. That was a word for a billion that was introduced. Oh, it was created because a billion, our numbers are, are wrong. A billion was actually a million million and a trillion was a million, tri a million, a million million, okay? A billion was a billion billion. A trillion was a million cubed, sorry. And now we've, we've changed that all about just to make the numbers work, all right? You understand what's happened? So you had, you had something to measure it by, yeah? So the value of the German mark was going down, 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 but the US dollar was staying up here. Do you know what's happening today? Every nation in the world, every Western country is devaluing their currency at the same rate. So we can't tell the difference. We can't tell the difference. All we find is that we're working harder and harder just trying to stay ahead. All we're finding at the moment is that we're running on a treadmill and we're actually going backwards. That's how we're experiencing it. And you know who's experiencing it the worst? Our pensioners, the people that are on the dole, the people that are on healthcare cards, the people that can afford it the least are the ones that are suffering the most through the socialistic endeavours that's going around in the world today. It breaks my heart because they keep voting for the same people <laughs> that they think they're getting money, money for nothing and they're not. You know? They're giving them a little bit on the top, they're taking a chunk out of the bottom. That's what's happening in the world today. Now, this crisis that needs to occur... It must be a global crisis, a financial global crisis, so we will cry out for a global solution. Remember? Global problem, quasar, global solution. What did we just go through? A global recession. A global recession. It's interesting, well, this is global now. No longer does one nation have a recession and another one doesn't. Now we're all linked together. Okay, can you, can you see what's happening? Behold told you before this is what our Lord's saying guys he's told us before he's told us in scripture before oh, I've got to show you this one so I kept this this is from a number of years ago it says a global currency a conspiracy theorist will love it okay and it was in the uh, it was in the age in 2009 and actually speaks about the world is a step closer to a global currency that's the first part of the of the newspaper there. I kept it, showed it to Michael all those years ago, and it was the first time Michael actually looked at it and thought, I can understand now how you can believe the Bible is true. Because it speaks about, we've been talking about global currency for ages, and all of a sudden I get this newspaper article. When did he tell? When did he tell? Last point. Behold, I have told you before. Romans chapter 3 begins with a question. It says, What advantage then hath the Jew? The answer was as profound as the question was simple. The answer was, Much every way. Chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracle of God. Chiefly, primarily, first in importance, absolute in value, chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracle, the word, the sayings of God. Chiefly, that was their advantage. That was their advantage. What Israel were given, they were entrusted with. And that's what we hold in our hands. If you've got the authorised version of the Bible, you have the very word of God for the English-speaking people. 
and you have the perfect word of God that you can know preserved for you. I love what John Bunyan said. He said, um, the, he's arguing with a university professor and the university professor says, Sir, you teach and you preach and you know all these things, but do you have the originals? Do you read the originals? And John Bunyan answered to him and he says, No, sir. No, sir, I don't. And then he asked him, Do you, sir, do you have the originals? And the individual said, uh, the university professor said, no, no, but I have faithful copies of the originals. And he says, and I believe that the English Bible is an exact copy of the originals. God doesn't have a problem with language. God doesn't. Satan has a problem with you reading the word of God and trusting it as your final authority and foundation for your faith. So he will give you a plethora of distractions. I once wrote an essay... And it was just entitled, Hiding the Bible in the Sea of Obscurity. And that's exactly what we have today. The benefit is not realised until it is employed. This is a point. There's a lot that we can benefit from having the words of God. There's nothing to benefit from having the words of God and not believing it. It's like having a million dollars in cash and not spending it. What's the point? The benefit is not realised until it is employed. The benefit of having the word of God is not realised until it is employed. You need to make use of it. Cash is nothing but waste paper unless it is redeemed for that which has (coughs) intrinsic value. God had told the Jews before. Jesus had told his disciples that sometime in the recent past, the Lord has told you in his words written with ink on a page in order in your language, perfectly preserved, so perfectly that there is no contradiction to his words when he said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Matthew, Mark, Luke, each repeat exactly that phrase. John's gospel was not to be undone by Matthew, Mark and Luke. The Lord stated, he that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The words that I have spoken... The same shall judge him in the last day. How amazing. The very words that have been rejected with Christ are the same words that will be judging through Christ. Behold, I've told you before. Let me close with this. The world is coming together and preparing the way for the reign of the beast. The Bible tells it and we have more than enough evidence to demonstrate it. We've only touched on three areas by expanding one portion of the Bible, but three areas that that we should be able to witness its change. We'll be able to witness those changes here once they occur. I shared the Word of God with uh, uh, one of my staff members and I was telling him about the things that are going to be coming according to what the Bible says, and I only mentioned those three things. You know what he said? He said, if I see anything like that coming, I'm definitely going to be coming to see you. What did he link together? What did he link? He linked that the, if he's seeing stuff like that happening. But what do we see happening today? The Bible also speaks about the nation of Israel. Ten years ago, I shared the gospel with another friend of mine and spoke about the nation of Israel. Right? I said, the Bible says the entire world is going to be against Israel in the last days. And that was ten years ago. I said, watch Israel. Watch everybody hate Israel. Watch Europe rise up in fury against Israel. It's exactly what's happening. It's exactly what's happening. Israel all of a sudden don't even have the right to defend themselves anymore. 
former Assistant Attorney General of the United Nations, said this, we must move as quickly as possible to a world government, to a one world government, one world religion, under a one world ruler. In his book in 1982, New Genesis, Shaping a Global Spirituality. What, what do you think of the Lord? What do you think of Christ? Do you, do you think his words are worth trusting and believing in? Do you think that it's something that can change your life if you would only believe it? So many Christians are in this transition period in their lives. They've been born again, born by the blood of Christ, and yet they've got one foot in the world and they, they want to be with the Lord, but they, they've, they've got the world here, and they, but they know that they, and they don't know what to do. And they're stuck and they're a mess and people are calling us hypocrites. The world recognises that we can't stay with one foot in each camp. Why don't we? Why don't we? Why don't we surrender ourselves, our hearts, our lives completely to what the Bible teaches is true? You're going to be judged an extremist? Yeah, but you won't be a hypocrite. You won't be a hypocrite. And you know what's going to happen? When you make that decision, do you know the burn and the love and the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to shine through your life? You're going to not... Help but want to share the gospel with people. You're going to want to share the gospel. Because you understand that there is nothing more important in your life. Nothing. Everything else piles into insignificance. Nothing else is important. If you don't know the Lord, if, if, if you're sitting there and you've been bouncing between decisions or you're not, you're not 100% sure... He just makes it really clear. He says, all that come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Saviour? Will you cast all your care upon him? And let everything else just work itself out. As Christians, we have hope and we have peace. We've got the light of the gospel of the Lord within our lives. The world can turn itself the pot. We have a message that saves the world. We have the message. Behold, he has told you before. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We know, dear Lord, and we see its effect, dear Father, within our lives. And we pray, dear Lord, and trust that you will do all you can to bring about your word that we might trust in it and believe it fully. Scripture says there will be a time where you will come. You will bring us back home to be with you. Scripture teaches that we can have hope and faith in Jesus Christ now if we would only believe. And that's all our charge, to believe. We pray, dear Lord, that our belief that we began with will continue to help us grow. That we would indeed live by our faith in the word of God not on a sandy foundation, dear Lord, but on the solid rock of truth. We praise you for the people that are here, dear Lord, and I ask you, dear Father, you would please prick the hearts of those that need to know you more, prick the hearts of those that are yet to come. I ask you, dear Father, that in their own time, in their own private will, that they will seek your face. You teach us, dear Lord, that all that seek you diligently will find you. I pray, dear Lord, that you would work and govern our hearts, help us grow in Christ, 
Help us be godly men. The world needs more men. The harvest is indeed ripe, but the workers are so few. Raise them up, dear Lord, raise them up, that they would share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and plant churches with the truth of the word of God in their hands. Help us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.